left on their face with a hobnailed boot and broke their nose. One, two, three. Bullshit. Welcome to the Run Podcast. I'm your host, David Bethay, coming to you from the Bifrost Bridge studio to talk to you about the Atlanta Hawks 2019-2020 season. If you're new to the podcast, which is most listeners since this is only our third episode, um, this podcast is now on iTunes and Spotify. So just search for Title Run Sports and you'll see our logo with the championship ring with the red George outline and the microphone in the center. So Thursday, the NBA Board of Governors approved a return to play plan for the league that officially ended the Hawks season at 67 games. And for Hawks fans, it was a rough year. And their 2047 record kind of encapsulate what was encapsulates what was just a disappointing season filled with some ups, a lot of downs, and even more what ifs. So the Hawks came into the season with a Vegas win projection of 34, uh, looking to build on their 29 win campaign from the previous year. And there were some people that thought they could even hang around the fringes of the playoff conversation, especially in the Eastern Conference. So any hopes of a really strong season was derailed pretty quickly as John Collins received a 25-game suspension. I think it was either four or five games into the season. And Kevin Herter got off to an injury-plague start, coming off injury that summer. And then after a few games, he hurt his shoulder. I think it was against the Denver Nuggets. Um, And then we got two months of absolutely wretched basketball from Ricky Cam Reddish. So the team rallied to put together a really promising 500 stretch late in the season from like late January to maybe the very beginning of March, end of February. And it was led by really phenomenal play by Trey Young and John Collins in a really promising second half search from Reddish. And that stretch plus the big midseason roster overhaul gave Hawks fans a, a lot of reason for optimism after what was just a really frustrating season. And so we're going to take a look at the good, the bad, and the ugly from the 2019-2020 season. So the Hawks were pretty clearly a bad team in 2019-2020. And their 20 and 47 record was the fourth worst in the league. We were at 1.8 and 32 at the very bottom of the league behind teams like Cleveland, who's actually trying to be bad, and teams like the New York Knicks, who are just inept. And we're going to take a quick look at some statistical rankings that really paint a pretty clear picture of what Hawks fans saw every night. The Hawks played horrible defense, they didn't take care of the basketball, and they struggled to hit outside shots. So here's a quick look at the Hawks' season by the numbers. So on offense, the Hawks ranked 16th in the NBA in points at 111.8. At pace, they ranked 6th. Field goal percentage, 44.9. They ranked 23rd. And here's where it gets interesting. The Hawks were dead last in the NBA in three-point percentage, but 6th in three-point attempts. And the Hawks were 28th in the league in turnovers at 16.2. Overall, an offensive rating, which is calculated by looking at how many points a team scores per 100 possessions, the Hawks ranked 21st. On the defensive side of the ball, the Hawks gave up the most points in the league at just under 120. They committed the most fouls in the league. They were 27th in rebounding rate and 28th in defensive rating at 114.4. So we'll circle back around to those numbers, but it begs the question, what went wrong? So we'll start with the most obvious thing, in my opinion, which is the roster construction. So the Hawks ended the season with, like, gaping holes on the roster at backup point guard and center, and it seems really clear in hindsight, but 
The plan to have Evan Turner and his awful contract serve as backup point guard to Trey Young was always iffy at best, but it turned into a just flaming disaster when he got hurt and only ended up playing 19 games. And he only averaged 13 points, excuse me, 13 minutes a game and scored three points a game. And he actually had a career worst shooting year, which when you're already considered a terrible shooter is not good. Uh, Turner shot 37% from the field and 0% from three, as in he did not make a three-pointer in 19 games for the Hawks. And so the Turner debacle left Kevin Herter and DeAndre Bimbry serving as the de facto backup point guards, which is not their position. And the Hawks kind of struggled there until they solidified that by bringing up Brandon Gooden from the G League and then trading for uh, former Timberwolves point guard Jeff Teague, bringing him back to Atlanta. So the only position that may have suffered even more than backup point guard was the center rotation. And Alex Lynn was coming off a career year, so it wasn't unreasonable to think that he could build on his 2018-2019 season and provide quality center play. But Lynn was just awful to start the year. Um, He completely lost his three-point touch, and he eventually ended up getting benched for Damian Jones. So Jones, for those of you that – don't follow all the crazy metrics. Um, he graded out as one of the three worst defensive centers in the league according to ESPN's real plus minus metric. Um, and on offense, he didn't give you a whole lot besides his ability to catch and finish lobs. And, of course, you know, this has people like me wondering, why did we trade Omari Spellman again? And so, you know, when Jones wasn't in there or Lynn wasn't in there, it was rookie Bruno Fernando, who was a lot better than Jones at the defensive end, but he still struggled because the reads and rotations you make in the NBA are a lot different than they are in college, and it seemed like Bruno Fernando entered every game with three fouls already. And so the end result was a center rotation that was arguably the worst in the NBA. So for fans like me, the biggest frustration is that you could kind of see this coming. If you turned your head and squinted really hard, you could see a world where things could work out, and Evan Turner was going to be healthy and play well, and Bruno Fernando gave you good defense, and Damian Jones, who didn't really play a lot in Golden State, might turn into something. But it was just pretty clear in the preseason that there were some clear gaps and some ill-fitting pieces. And um, an example of this is when you looked at the second line and you saw that you had DeAndre Bembry and Evan Turner running your backcourt. That's zero outside shooting. And then you think about Damian Jones and Jabari Parker as your front court on that second unit, and you realize that, again, terrible defense. And I have to say that Jabari Park was actually pretty good for the Hawks this year, especially in offense. But overall, you had a bunch of ill-fitting pieces. And the blame for that goes squarely at the feet of Hawks GM Travis Schlink. And he had to work four separate trades to re-ramp the Hawks bench into something that just remotely resembled a competent NBA backup unit. And while he deserves credit for that, it's hard not to blame him for putting the Hawks in such a mess with the rotation to begin with. I mean, you had games where... Vince Carter was closing the game at center because he was the only person that could make competent rotations. And again, that falls at the feet of Travis Schlink. The other obvious blow to the Hawks season was the John Collins suspension. So Collins got handed a 25-game suspension early in the season for violating the league's drug policy, and the Hawks went 4-21 and during that stretch. Um, and Kevin Herter also got hurt during that time also. So the Hawks won at a 16% clip with John Collins out. For comparison, the rest of the year, they went 16-26 and 26 and won at a 38% clip. So, needless to say, they struggled without Collins in the lineup. And his suspension devastated a front line that was already very offensively challenged because the only really 
good offensive player besides John Collins in the front court is Jabari Parker. And when Collins went down, Parker gets thrust into the starting lineup, and then Bruno Fernando, a rookie, and Vince Carter, who's 42 years old, get pushed into heavy rotational duty. So when you combine that with Alex's, Alex Lynn's slow start, it created some of the worst front court play in the league. And even Trey Young putting on those virtuoso offensive games he was couldn't carry the team to a competitive record. And the last thing to point out with what went wrong with the Hawks was obviously their defense. And the Hawks allowed the most points in the NBA and rated number 28 in defensive efficiency. And the league average for defensive efficiency is around 109. The Hawks were at 114.4. And a lot of that gets put on Trey Young because, yes, he is a terrible defender. But there's a lot of other factors that contributed. Um, the Hawks committed the most fouls in the league, the third most turnovers, and then finished 27th in rebounding rate. So what you get when you put all that together is that they allowed a ton of extra possessions, a ton of free throws, and then struggled to rebound the ball when they did play solid defense. As for Trey Young, he rated as one of the three worst defenders in the league at the guard position in real plus minus. And the Hawks' defensive rating went from 114.4 to 116.1 with Trey on the floor. So, again, very bad. They were worse on defense with him on the floor. But to Trey's credit, he did show some marginal improvement in uh, his defensive activity and his ability to stand in front of ball handlers. But he's always going to struggle to navigate screens, and he's gets destroyed in switches because he's so small. He does not have long arms like some other point guards that are good defensive point guards. Even a guy like Dennis Schroeder, who's roughly the same size as Trey, has basically friggishly long arms from his size that allow him to be a lot more effective as a defender. So Trey is very hard to scheme around for that reason. And when you play Trey alongside Damian Jones, things go from bad to pretty much unmanageable. So the Hawks had an Absolutely astronomical defensive rating of 121 with Trey Young and Damian Jones on the floor together. And anytime Jones was on the floor, period, they had a rating of 117. So that means that they actually played worse defense with Jones on the floor than with Trey Young. Then you throw in Jabari Parker, who had a 116 rating when he was on the floor. And you remember that these three all started together at one point during the season. Now, you always have to add context to these plus-minus numbers. They're not perfect because you have to consider other things like the opponent, the game situation, who are the other players on the floor, etc. But it paints a pretty clear picture that when it comes to Atlanta's bad defense, Trey was far from the only problem. So let's talk about what went right. And there actually were some bright spots for the Hawks this year. The number one bright spot obviously being Trey Young. And Trey put together one of the best sophomore years of any guard in NBA history offensively, um, earned an all-star start, and he ranked fifth in the NBA in offensive real plus minus at 4.22. The guys in front of him, James Harden, Giannis Antetokounmpo, LeBron James, and Steph Curry. So you have three former MVPs and the reigning MVP. And yes, he ended up one spot ahead of Luka Doncic, who also put together one of the best sophomore years of all time. So to provide you with some context, Trey stats, 29.6 points, 9.3 assists, 4.3 rebounds, 43.7 field goal percentage, but a true shooting percentage of 59.5, which accounts for free throws and the value of three-pointers over two-pointers. His player efficiency rating was 23.9 according to basketball reference, and he was good for 5.9 win shares. Luka had very similar stats, 28.7 points, 8.7 assists, 9.3 rebounds, 
46.1 from the field, but Luka only shot 32% from three, while Trace shot 36.7. So Luka had a true shooting percentage of 58.4, which is actually lower than Trace, but he did have a higher player efficiency rating because of the value of rebounds in that system. So just to compare those two years with a couple of other Hall of Fame guards, Oscar Robertson and Jerry West, Oscar Robertson's sophomore year, 25 points, 11 rebounds, excuse me, 25 points, 11 assists, 12 rebounds, true shooting percentage of 55%. And then Jerry West, 30.8 points, 5.4 assists, 7.9 rebounds, true shooting percentage of 52.4. So you have Trey and Luca just blowing these Hall of Famers away in efficiency and matching them in production. So when we talk about these two having just absolutely insane second years, they are already tracking as Hall of Fame type offensive players if they continue to play at this level. So Trey currently stands fourth in the NBA in scoring and second in assists. And we have to remember that that assist total comes on a team that is the worst three-point shooting team in the league. So if you picture what he could do on a team with just league average three-point shooting, he might lead the league in assists. And with Young on the floor, Atlanta's offensive rating went from 107 up to 111, which would be in the middle of the league. And their offensive rating plummeted when he sat. By any measure you choose, Trey was one of the five most impactful offensive players in the NBA this season. And he's an elite offensive engine that the Hawks can build around moving forward. The question is whether the Hawks can build a roster that provides enough defense to hide Trey's deficiencies while still providing enough shooting to accent his playmaking. And... That's not a challenge unique to Atlanta. There's a reason that very few championship teams have a point guard as their best player. And some of the ones that have, like the Bad Boy Pistons and Golden State, did it with multiple elite defenders in their roster. The Bad Boy Pistons had Dennis Rodman winning Defensive Player of the Year. They had Joe Dumars, who was an elite defender, and they had Bill Lambeer. The Golden State Warriors had Klay Thompson, Draymond Green, and then Andre Iguodala coming off their bench. So they were a team stacked with very, very good defenders. And the Hawks are going to try to have to construct a similar roster to complement Trey if they're going to be successful in this era of basketball. So if the Hawks' intent is to build around Trey Young the way the Bad Boy Pistons built around Isaiah Thomas or the Golden State Warriors built around Steph Curry, it helps to have a second star that can score and play defense, which is what you got in John Collins. Uh, Collins had a monster year, and it kind of leaves fans wondering what would have happened if he hadn't had the 25-game suspension. And he had 22 double-doubles in his 41 games and a true shooting percentage of 66%. To give you an idea of how good that is, uh, the last player to shoot that percentage and average at least 20 points a game was Steph Curry in the 2015-2016 season where he won unanimous MVP. So Collins shot 58% from the field, a team-high 40% from the three-point line, and 80% from the foul line. There's just no other power forward in the NBA is doing that. And his efficiency from all areas of the court kind of puts to rest some of the rumors that he's just a high-end lob threat and totally relying on Trey Young, which is something that you will hear from people that don't watch the Hawks a lot. Collins also improved tremendously on the defensive end, doubled his steal rate, tripled his block rate, uh, or almost tripled his block rate from 0.6 to 1.6, and he ended up ranking 12th in the league in contested shots and 16th among all power forwards in defensive plus minus. So, any way you slice it, he's a rapidly ascending power forward who's real close to being in that category of one of the elites, and the Hawks are going to have to figure out if they want to pay him. Collins has already voiced his desire for a max contract, and when you compare him to guys like DeMontis Sabonis, who's at 
four years, seventy-seven million. Uh, even Julius Randle, who's at three years, sixty-two million, and then Pascal Siakam, who's at four years and one hundred thirty million. Even Kristaps Porzingis is at five years and one hundred fifty-eight million. When you look at him compared to those guys, it's not crazy to think that he could get the max. The question is, will the Hawks be the one to offer it to him? So a few of the questions that the Hawks have to answer in considering this is, first, could Collins be the second-best player on a championship team, assuming Trey Young is as good as his statistical numbers project? Second, if Collins leaves, how easily can you replace his mixture of offensive versatility, improving defensive production, and chemistry with Trey Young? And the third question would be, how will Collins fit along newly acquired center Clint Capella? So, no matter what happens with the Hawks this offseason, they don't have to extend Collins. They do have him under contract for another year. The fact that you're having to decide whether or not to max Collins is a good problem because it means you hit on the draft pick. Another thing that went right for the Hawks was the second half for Cam Reddish. And it's difficult to overstate just how bad he was during the first few months of the season. Um, while his fellow rookie DeAndre Hunter kind of had a steady but unspectacular rookie season, Reddish... Reddish's offense production was like an EKG early in the year. He shot 5.6% from three during October and 21% from the field. And from October through December, he made just 26% of his three-pointers and 32% of his field goals. And he also averaged more turnovers and assists. And while that ratio improved, he averaged more turnovers than assists for the entire season. Statistically, Reddish began the year as one of the worst offensive players in basketball, but he did, fortunately, recover. He uh, appeared to make some in-season tweaks to his jumper. It looked like he maybe changed the place where he located his pocket or his release, but from January to the end of the season, he shot 44.5% from the field, almost 40% from three, and he moved his average up to 13 points per game. Now, his real shooting ability is probably somewhere in between those numbers. He's not going to shoot 5% like he did in October, and he ain't going to shoot 50% like he did in March. But his improved spot-up shooting allowed the good defense he was playing to complement his offense. And the defensive metrics don't really match the eye test for him. Uh, Rookies are generally bad on defense in the NBA because defensive schemes require a lot more thinking and fast rotations, and NBA teams just have shooting everywhere. But Reddish's defensive plus-minus rated lower than players like Lou Williams and Marco Bellinelli which is puzzling because when you look at his stats, you know, he led the team in deflections. He was second in steals and third in blocks. And even though he rated as a below-average defender according to uh, Real Plus Minus, the eye test showed a guy that was an already capable on-ball defender, and he flashed the instincts and activity of you know a future all-league stopper. So if the shooting improvement is real, Reddish looks like he could be a perfect long-term compliment for Trey Young. The last big thing that went right for the Hawks was the in-season trades, and after they started 8-32, and the Hawks actually finished the season by going 12-15 and in their last 27 games, and a big part of that was the mid-season acquisitions. And the first of those moves brought Jeff Teague back over with Travion Graham from Minnesota, and Teague played in 25 of the last 27 games. When you look at the Hawks' turnaround, it really coincided with Teague joining the roster, and he provided an immediate and colossal upgrade to the second unit, uh, lifting the the offensive rating up to a 108 when he took the four in place of Trey Young. And he was joined about two weeks later by Dwayne Dedman, right before the trade deadline, who provided an immediate upgrade to the center position. And he played like absolute trash in Sacramento, 
shot 19% on threes, ended up getting himself completely out of the Kings rotation. And his contract is really not a good value for a backup center at $13 million a year. But he's only guaranteed through 2021, meaning the Hawks can get out of it after next season. And Devin never found a shot in Atlanta. He shot just 22% from three, but his intangibles are such an important part of who he is. He's a great communicator on defense. He's a strong and very popular locker room presence. And that filled two desperate needs for the Hawks, who struggled with leadership after losing Deadman and Kent Bazemore last offseason. The most exciting acquisition had to be Clint Capella, who gives the Hawks the center of the immediate future. He's a good but not elite interior defender, but he is an elite rebounder. And before he got injured and Houston went to their small ball lineup, Capella had eight straight games with 19 or more rebounds which is incredible. So he's very efficient on offense, but the majority of his scoring does come from lobs and putbacks. Um, his best skill is as a roll man in pick and roll, which does make him a less than perfect fit alongside John Collins, who essentially has a similar skill set. But what would be interesting is to see how Capella plays in lineups with DeAndre Hunter as a stretch four, um, with Hunter's outside shooting being very strong. And Capella's contract is pretty good value, and the team has him under control for the next three years, which takes you through age 28, which is fantastic. Scalabissieri was another big that the Hawks traded for uh, coming over from Portland. He's yet another big that's young and cheap, and he provides solid rebounding in an old-school offensive game. So he is not a super athlete or a lob threat, but he'll put a drop step on you or throw a hook shot up and score in low post and then step out and hit mid-range jumpers. So he's never really found a clear role in the NBA, and it's not clear how the Hawks intend to use him, but he has more upside than Fernando and Jones combined, and he'll likely be battling Bruno Fernando for minutes as the Hawks' fourth big next year. But what's interesting about him is he's got that former first-round pedigree, and he's got an intriguing offensive skill set, and scoring in the front court is a desperate need for the Hawks. A few last additional observations about the Hawks season. Um, One is that Kevin Herter's development this year kind of flew under the radar. He improved his rebounding rate, assist rate, free throw rate, while also increasing his usage, but he maintained his three-point shooting efficiency even though he increased his attempts. So last year he shot 4.7 threes a game. This year he shot six threes a game, and he still managed to shoot 38%, which is really good. And he can still improve on the defensive end, and he's got to be more willing to attack the basket. But he made a lot of progress that was overshadowed by what Trey Young and John Collins were doing this year. Another observation is DeAndre Hunter actually has a lot more offensive game than I think people expected. He averaged 12.3 points per game. Herter averaged 12.2, and Herter, of course, is seen as an offensive player. And he shot 35.5% from three-point range, which is actually right around league average. And he did that in five attempts a game, so that's real volume. So he didn't quite live up to his billing as an instant impact defender, but his surprisingly adept shooting touch seems to indicate that his offensive ceiling may be a little higher than people initially thought. And then a question is, what do the Hawks do with DeAndre Bembry? And Bembry is a personal favorite of mine, and he comes with high energy, a great afro, um, excellent defense, and really plus finishing. But he's also an extremely spotty shooter, and he has a long injury history, and He's averaged 47 games a year in his time with the Hawks. He missed 24 games this year. And his three-point shooting has dropped each of the last three seasons from 36.7% to 28.9% to 23% this year. So the Hawks can bring him back with a $3.7 million qualifying offer. And the question is, is that worth it for a reliable defensive wing 
that you can put on the bench behind Herder, Reddish, and Hunter? The answer is probably yes. But, again, he's only valuable if he's actually on the court, which he's been unable to do for most of his Hawks career. So the question I'm asking is, what will Hawks fans remember about this season? League-wide, we know that this will be the season that people remember because of COVID-19 stopping the league for four months. But as a Hawks fan, what will you take away? I think the overwhelming narrative centers around the ascension of Trey Young and the devastating effects of the John Collins suspension, but also the reshaping of the roster during the second half. And, you know, a lot of fans didn't expect the team to compete for the playoffs, but no one, not even the front office, expected the team to regress to the very bottom tier of the league. And, yeah, the improved lottery odds could help you add another blue-chip talent, but what it won't help with is attracting the kind of veteran star power you need to get a young team over the hump. And youth doesn't win the NBA, so instead of the Hawks building on their 29-win season to show that they're just a piece or two away from playoff contention, they filled an ill-constructed roster that really exposed their desperate need for veteran talent and leadership. So all in all, the 2019-20 season can be described as disappointing, but... For frustrated fans like myself, there is reasonable hope for better things for the Hawks moving forward. That's it for today. I'm David Bethay with the Title Run Podcast. Thanks for listening.